bit now. I'll pray first and then we'll get started. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to learn about who you are and what you've done uh, for your people. Thank you for showing us uh, kindness and grace and mercy through your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, this week we are in Luke 19 and 20. Um, thankfully there are really no major controversial passages or particularly difficult ones. I'm not in 23 or 24 and the whole timing of the temple, the destruction, all of that. So that's, uh, Ryan has that in three weeks. It's a tough one. Um, I'll read the first part. I'll read 1 through 10 of Jesus and Zacchaeus, and I'll talk about it here. Uh, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, he could not, because he was small of stature, so he ran on ahead and climbed up onto a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He he has gone to be in the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the man, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Okay. So the main characters here are obviously Jesus, Zacchaeus. I would also throw the, the infamous they in verse 7 in there. But I thought it's probably the Pharisees and the scribes and Pharisees. So. You could just guess by the reaction. Um, in this passage, what's interesting here is Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and he's a chief tax collector. So <clears throat> tax collectors, as I mentioned uh, many lessons back, were not popular with the Jews. They were probably seen, they were seen as almost traitors to their people were collecting, taking money from the Jews and giving it to the Romans. And many of them were probably corrupt. Zacchaeus mentions here and knows if I have defrauded anyone. They may have probably skimmed a little bit for themselves. Um, and it says he was rich, which is interesting because only two, one chapter before, Luke 18 through 30, you have the parable of the rich young ruler and how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Zacchaeus. Um, once he sees, wants to see who Jesus is, obviously he's heard about him, otherwise he wouldn't be doing what he's doing. And he's kind of a little undignified. He goes and climbs a tree, which probably isn't too dignified for a, you know, a high-ranking tax collector. Kind of like the parable of the uh, prodigal son, when the son returns and the the, the father runs, you know, picks it. That's, that, that wouldn't be a common thing to do to expect him to do that. So. Obviously, he, he really wanted to see Jesus. Climbs up on a tree. 
Jesus knew he was there, whether or not this was, he could see him in the distance or there was some sort of sense in which he had access to supernatural knowledge at this time. I don't know. It's possible. Um, obviously, there are times when Jesus didn't have access to divine knowledge. Um, second coming. Uh, so he tells him to come down. Zacchaeus is happily, happily comes down. So he receives him joyfully. And we have verse 7, the they there. That is the Pharisees, the scribes, the pretty much the bad guys of these last chapters. And you'll, see, you'll notice that the, the tension is pretty much ramping up at this point, and it's, it's quite direct. The, the conflict is, the credit is, is direct, and it's, I mean, even Jesus is, if you look at the parable being told here, he's launching them directly at the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders. Um, it says, you come to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. So, um, and it doesn't say that Zacchaeus believed, but you can infer from verse 8 that uh, he says, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if you defer it, anyone will pay a fourfold. So you see the what would be the fruit of salvation. You don't, this is not how he was saved, but as a result of him being saved, he decided, yeah, I, I may have robbed someone, I'm going to pay back, and I'm going to pay back more. Um, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, recognizing that Zacchaeus at this moment has now become, he is now justified. And what's interesting here, he calls him a son of Abraham, which again, I think is a shot at the religious leaders, because they, um, prior to these encounters, not necessarily Luke though, he would, they would say they were sons of Abraham. Jesus said, you're sons of your father and devil. The interesting thing is that they're pointing to their ethnic lineage as the sign of their being a son of Abraham. But what Jesus is really pointing to is a spiritual lineage. Because Zacchaeus ethnically, racially, was a Jew. So yeah, he was. But they're saying more. He's saying you know, he is a spiritual son of Abraham. That he was a, of the faith of Abraham. So... And I think I think they catch this. I don't. I think these guys are pretty sharp, um, and they probably catch it. Doesn't show a response, but at this point, this is where the I don't want to say insults, but this is where the confrontation it goes back and forth. Um, for the Son of Man came to save, save and seek the lost. And you go back to they say he is a sinner. You know the, the religious leaders. He's finding those who are lost. He's saving those, the, the tax collector, the despised traitor of the Jewish people, can become a true son of Abraham, which, thinking of the Pharisees and their religious pride, that would probably make them pretty mad. They're the sons of Abraham. They're the leaders. They're the ones who are respected. Not this tax collector who's, you know, robbing us and giving to those dirty Gentile Romans. Um, so that's the first one. Just fairly, fairly straightforward. In point, an interesting point is, as a result of his salvation, there was a change in Zacchaeus' life. So if you want to take an application from this, you know, fire insurance view of salvation where it's just 
you have it, but you're up, there's no change in somebody's life. There was pretty much an immediate change in Zacchaeus. Now, was he perfectly sanctified? No. But he was willing to, like, you know, give up a lot of wealth to say, hey, I'm here. It, there was a change of his heart, which is demonstrated by what he was willing to do, which is money. Uh, the next parable is we have the parable of the ten minus. Oh, sorry, the next story is the parable. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble one went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minus has gained gained ten minus more. And he said to them, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your, man, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I had kept, laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You do not take what you take, what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. When, why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the money from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them to me, bring them here, and slaughter them before me. Okay, this is Jesus talking to, uh, this one I think is clearly aimed at the religious leaders of Israel. Um, because this is after the episode of Zacchaeus. And it comes on that he's going into Jerusalem, and they suppose that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. The Jews had certain expectations about what Jesus was going to do when he came into um, Jerusalem. Witnessed by the disciples when they were asking, who's going to sit at your right, right, or left hand? They're expecting Jesus to throw out the Romans, get rid of these dirty Gentiles, and set up a Jewish kingdom on earth. And Jesus knows this. Um, so he's going to tell a parable relating to uh, essentially talking about the nation of Israel. So you have the nobleman, right? That's God. Then you have um, the ten servants. You could say that's the nation of Israel, right? It doesn't work for There's not ten people in Israel. The parable still works. And the nobleman basically gives them some money to invest, do business. And he's going to come back, and you already have in verse, let's 
see. Yeah. They hated him. 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying. So, I mean, Jesus is saying to Israel, his Old Testament people, the God's Old Testament people, that they hated him. I mean, this has got to infuriate the religious leaders. So I said before, the, the level of conflict here is it's certainly increasing, and you know, the religious leaders are going to take note of this. Um, and there are, there are, they have ten servants that were given money. Only three are mentioned. Uh, we don't know what happened to the other seven. I don't think it's that. It's not that important necessarily. But you have two faithful servants. One who earns basically uh, doubles his money here, uh, and the other one who says it. Actually, he said, well, he gets ten times. The other one gets five times. And there's a reward proportionate to the level of. So the one who gets 10 minus is in charge of 10 cities, and then there's one who gains 5 minus is in charge of 5 cities. It seems there's a level of the reward is proportional, not all the rewards are the same. And then the third one, I think, is representative of the unfaithful servant here, which is an unbelieving servant, basically did nothing. He did nothing with his minus, he basically just hit it in a handkerchief, put it under his mattress, did nothing with it. Um, and they give the reason for, for afraid you're a severe man, you take what they did the pocket, grief what you did not sow. No, I think those things said there, this is a parable, so these ideas of you're a severe man, I don't think this is saying that God is a severe, like a severe man. This is just kind of, this is a story to sort of make a point here. Um, so we don't want to take every little detail and so and you know, the nobleman says well at least just put it in the bank so I can gain interest I mean it's not even that hard you don't have to do much work for that so clearly the servant was pretty lazy didn't want to do anything and basically he takes the minor from him and gives it to the one with ten of course everyone says well that doesn't seem fair at all I mean He's already got more, but because that the, the one who gained ten was faithful, he worked harder, and now this guy did absolutely nothing. Um, that servant of that servant, the one who didn't do anything, is unbelieving as well. I think it's also directly straight at the directed straight at the religious leaders. That's who he's talking to. I think directly. And then by implication, if you want to spread it out to unbelieving Israel, and then if you want to spread it out to unbelieving people in general, if you want to go out layers, you know, layers upon layers. But directly, he's speaking direct to those, you know, those who said that he took a sinner into his house, uh, to Zacchaeus' house. Um, and 27. But for these enemies of mine, who do not want to reign over, you bring them in slaughter before me. So the enemies are going to be punished. Um, and again, this, this is, I can only imagine that the Pharisees—they're just—they've got to be seething with rage at this point, because they know he's talking about them, and it's just like they're basically saying, "You're enemies of my, your enemies, you know, your enemies of the nobleman, your enemies of the landowner." It's just—it's coming to a head, and. 
you know, you're calling Zacchaeus the, the son of Abraham, and all these things are just he's calling them out, and that the you know the lines have more than been drawn, but they're they're going to basically are going to get to the end. And, Killing Jesus. Um, so again, this is to the kingdom of Israel. Uh, so and also, they're missing what Jesus' kingdom was about. It wasn't a physical kingdom. Even the disciples missed that. It's a spiritual kingdom, and they want power. They wanted power. maybe they didn't want the power in the kingdom of God when they came and kicked out the Romans. I'm sure the Pharisees wanted power too. So probably a maybe a cautionary tale for us is to not to really understand the true nature of the kingdom in this world. That is not not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus reigns in the hearts of his people. Yes. Jesus is still sovereign over all the unbelievers in the world, too. They're not denying that, but he rules over them differently. And he's not sitting on a throne somewhere on earth, ruling and, you know, just sort of directing things. Um, okay, move on to the triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem. And when, he had, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem, when he drew near the Beth page into Bethany at the Mount of, that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where you where on entering you will find a colt tied, which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying it, the, tying the colt, its owner said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And he said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and drawing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on their way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. He said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, Tell you if I tell you if these were silent, even the very stones would cry out. So again, got Jesus, got the disciples, I'm not going to call the donkey a major player there. He's the instrument of the transportation in this. And the Pharisees again. Who were if you're writing a play with bad guys, these are just the like they're like the stupid bad guys. They just keep missing the point all the time. Um, so this is following the parable of the ten liners. He's going into Jerusalem. He gets the colt, and there, this is a fulfillment of Zechariah nine nine. The riding in on a colt. Zechariah nine. Nine, um, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, he is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. So, those who are shouting, at least some of them would have known the book of Zechariah and realized what's going on here. 
that who this is who's coming. I mean, even what they say, uh, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There's an acknowledgement there. It's not just a, like, it's just yay, like, kind of waving. But I mean, they're acknowledging something that this is, this is the king, this is the king who's going to bring salvation. Um, and, I mean, again, this is, it is two, one thing to think of here. The king who's going to save his people comes on a, a cult, a donkey, a, a lowly animal. I mean, we go back to Jesus' birth in a stable because they didn't have, they couldn't get regular, you know, lodging for humans. They had to find lodging for animals to go stable. These are, um, so the humility, there's a the humility to what's going on, to the, the way he comes in. I mean, if you think most times this is the Roman world, armies would march in in great procession and sort of go through the center of, of the city or something like that, and you would, everyone would see them with with all their, their armor and on their horses, with all their weapons. It would be like... Um, Something it would be something to watch there. I mean, this is just one man on a donkey, as opposed to a whole army with probably polished armor and things going through the center of the city. But yet, Jesus's coming is greater than any march of Caesar back to Rome or anything like that, because he's eventually going to save his people eternally. Whereas any one of those triumphal armies maybe save somebody temporally but not eternally so there's a there's a contrast that a king is coming on a donkey it's humility God doesn't work in the ways that we expect again if you look at the, the expectations of what they thought the kingdom was going to be like kick out the Romans doesn't look like it's going their way if there's coming in on a donkey. This is, it doesn't seem to be going that direction. Oh yeah, this guy is going to kick out the Romans. So God definitely doesn't, it's clear God doesn't work the way they expected. And I, I, I suspect if we were there at the time, we probably wouldn't be, I probably wouldn't, I'll say it for myself, I wouldn't be expecting, you know, oh, it's going to be this humble rabbi who's going to die for the sins of his people. Um, of course, the Pharisees notice this, and I think they knew Zechariah 9. They're like, wait, you can't think this is that, right? I mean, you clearly can't think this is the king who's going to bring salvation to his people. So basically it says, okay, tell them to be quiet. This is, no, 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 you can't do this. So their opposition now is like, no, this isn't the king. Clearly he is not the king who's going to save his people. And Jesus basically says, well, if they're silent, the stones will cry out. Now, Jesus knows that stones can't talk. This isn't you know, some weird uh, mythological religious thing. But he understood basically saying that they, he, this, is the event, this event is true. He is the king. Somebody, somebody will cry out even if they don't cry out. Um, again, the Pharisees are missing the point. They're being, I think they're being hardened more and more each time. I think it's like, if you look at what the preaching of the gospel will do to some, it will soften some and it hardens others. 
they're being hardened more and more. Now it's just, you are not the king who's going to rule over. I'm just saying that. The crowd's happy. This is, you know, now it's, no, you're not the king. Uh, denying who Jesus, who he is. Um, so we're still on our way to Jerusalem. We go to 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that made for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. For the days that will come upon you, and your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, and you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay. This passage here, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. He weeps because Jerusalem is the center of Jewish life. Right? And they didn't know the things that made for peace. Now the peace he's talking about is peace with God. Not just sort of temporal peace among men, you know, a world without war type thing. Um, He's also weeping because he knows what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Now, reading this and, and having read Josephus's Jewish Wars, and which occurred in, in 67 to 70, and the Romans pretty much besieged Jerusalem. They surrounded it. They starved, basically starved the Jews out where the Jews were killing and literally destroying each other. This is a reference to 70 AD. This is, because he's saying it to them. He's not talking to some future generation. I have dispensationalism in mind here. He's talking to this group here, for the days will come upon you when your enemies, I mean, this is barricade around you. If you read Josephus' description of the Jewish wars, it's what the, the, the Romans did. And tear you down to the ground, and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. And if you, what happened to the Jerusalem, so they basically tore down the temple. There was absolutely nothing left of the temple. And the reason for all this, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, visitation here would be to refer to the first coming of the Messiah. Uh, Peter uses that language in the verse. First. Talks about the uses it into the. He uses it in reference to the second coming. Find it when he's talking to believers too. Okay. First uh, Peter two eleven and twelve, talking to the. Church, Peter's beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify you on the day of visitation. Now, I think the good day of that same language, day of visitation, that is referring to the second coming, the idea of the coming of the Messiah. Um, so now Jesus is saying Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. I don't know if everybody caught it. I don't in the audience. I'm trying to imagine if they really got what was being said there. 
Has this has been the center of uh, Jewish life for millennia and a half? You know, I mean, this is this is their city. This is, I mean, when Rome fell and Rome is called the Eternal City uh, after this, uh, later on, and when it fell in the 400s, the people of Rome were happened to be even more so. Rome and Rome only started in. First century BC, thereabouts. I mean, we're talking about a millennium and a half of of, of, the, of the Jewish people existing. But I don't think they they don't you don't see a response. But if someone thought about this, like wow, okay, so because we didn't know who this was who's coming to us, we're without a land. We're done. We're wiped out. And what happens after 70 AD is the Jews are dispersed. They are. No, the ones that aren't killed because they stayed. Now many Christians left because they figured out. There are other warnings about the second coming, about fleeing. But they basically got out and they saw the Romans sort of setting up. Okay, this is. I think I've heard about this. Let's go. Um, but many died. But the ones who didn't, they were just dispersed. Um, so Jerusalem will be destroyed. Um, 45 to 48. And, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men were seeking to destroy him. And now you can see there. Okay, now they didn't want to kill him. But they did not any, find anything they could do for all the people who were hanging on his words. It doesn't tell much about exactly why he was. I mean, it says, yeah, my house will be a house of prayer. You made a den of robbers. But other Gospels speak of the, the selling and like almost like a marketplace type thing. I've heard people talk about how they were defrauding people and you know basically charging more and saying this is a blemished lamb or sheep and then taking it and then reselling it as a clean, you know, unblemished and basically extorting people because they had to have something for their sacrifices. Whatever it is, we don't have it here, but it's clearly there and up to no good. The temple is not being used for its, per for its original purpose. Um, and dry, he drives them out. And he, calls it, he calls it a den of robbers. Again, pretty extreme. I mean, this is supposed to be the place where the people of Israel come to see God, we come to worship God, make sacrifices, um, and they're basically uh, a corrupt marketplace, that's what they've made it. He's teaching every day, so he's not hiding, Jesus isn't hiding from the Pharisees. Um, and in that second part of 47, the chief priests and the scribes, now it's just, they're trying to find some way to, get, we're going to get him, we have to get him now, there's no... They realize that if it goes on, the people are either going to follow Jesus and do some. They probably get rid of them, or they got to get rid of Jesus so they could stay around. So there's, there's no sort of because people are following Jesus, and they're they're they maybe they're losing disciples. Um, so it's like okay, we're losing power. We really got to get rid of this guy. There's not going to be no way to, for him to go away quietly or something. Or you know, this, this is going to end badly for. For somebody, at least somebody's going to die. Um, and it says, but they could not find anything they could do 
for their hanging on his words. And if you go to chapter 20 here, this is where they sort of start their campaign to destroy him. One day as Jesus was teaching people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? As they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if you say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's their first. This is like tribe number one. Okay, let's just... Who are, who are you? Who are you to do this? Um, and Jesus obviously knows this. He's not... He's keen to what they're doing. So he... Is, as it's common to do is ask a question John's baptism from God or from man simple question right is it was John working on his own right um, yeah baptism of John is that on his own is he a false prophet is he a true prophet take your side there's no middle ground here there's you know he's either a true prophet or a false prophet John had also been killed at this point so by uh, Herod yeah one of the Herods, I forgot which one. There's, there's one of Jesus' birth, and there's like a second and third one by the time Jesus is 30. Um, so they sort of do what politicians do when they ask a difficult question. When they realize if they say yes, they're going to alienate one group, and if they say no, you know, they're gonna, they're, either way, they're painted into a corner. So they're like, well, if we say no, then we're calling them a false. People will be mad at us. So they they don't really they don't want to answer this. Um, if we say from heaven, he said, "Why do you not believe him?" So they know it's like okay, if we say it's from heaven, it's from God. We really should believe it, but we kind of agreed with Herod when they killed him. This isn't good. So let's and then I could. But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. So like now they're afraid of the crowds. <coughs> We're stuck here. Um, because they were convinced John was a prophet. Uh, so they said, well, we don't know. They did option three. They, you know, it's like, well, we just don't know. It's kind of the, 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 cheap, the, the easy uh, agnostic cop-out in this case here. Um, but Jesus knows it. They, they know. It's just they don't want to say. So they basically, okay, you don't know. I'm not going to tell you what authority I'm doing these things. If you want to play games with me, I'm just okay. You don't give me an answer, I won't give you an answer. He knows what they're up to. Presumably people are watching this, too. I think so. Watching this exchange, you're going, okay, these guys, aren't these the leaders of Israel? Shouldn't they know what was going on with John, where that was from, and whether or not it was from God or from man? Um, you know, so if you're watching this as a regular citizen of Israel, it's like, why don't you guys know? He's telling us what to do all the time. Why? Now all of a sudden, well, you have no idea. We just, we don't know. So in a sense, they really look bad because it's like they should know. I think people realize you, you say you don't. Um, 
begin. That's the first time. So now Jesus goes on and tells a, a parable of the wicked tenants uh, from 9 to 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let, and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent the servant to his tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. The tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully. And sent him away empty-handed. And he yet sent a third. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wouldn't be cast out. The owner of the vineyard, vineyard said, What shall I do? Will I send my beloved son? Perhaps I will respect him. But when tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir, let us kill him, so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is that what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on him, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay, so the vineyard, God is the one planting the vineyard, right? Um, Israelite Israel is the vineyard. I think that's pretty clear. Um, the servants of the prophets. Alright? I think that's pretty, I mean, fairly straightforward. Send one servant. They beat him up. They beat him up. Send him one. Send another one. They beat him up. Send the third one. They beat him up. Then the owner of the vineyard. Now, when it says 13 and 13, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. This is not, again, a parable. This is not God didn't know what they were going to do with Jesus. It's like, okay, I send my God knew exactly what was going to happen to Jesus when he came. But this is, again, a parable, not every single thing has a, this isn't a, uh, an analogy. This is not an allegory of what is a one-to-one correspondence to some, something we should take out. Um, so he sends the son. Well, the son was standing there right before him. Um, and basically, he's, he, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. Let us let us kill him. I know you have before that they, you know, uh, where the yeah in 47 the, the Pharisees already decided they were going to destroy Jesus. So they're going to kill the son. So then the question is, okay, what are you, what are you supposed to do with these wicked tenants? It's kind of like the parable that uh, uh, David and the prophet Nathan. Comes to him as a man, and he steals, he steals his, his his one what prize his one sheep his one prize sheep, and the answer is obvious. Well, what do you do? Well, clearly, you know this person, and it's like, oops, but that's you. You took the guy's wife. Like, oh wait, now I'm in trouble. It's the same thing here. It's like they know the wicked tenants something, some sort of punishment to befall them. Um, so, and it says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give them the bread to others. They say, surely not. They get it because they know they're the tenants and this is the vineyard. They're in the vineyard. They're the tenants. They know this. And there's like, no, not, surely not us. We're not the ones like, it's like, well, yes, you, because, you know, 
the un unbelieving Israel wants to destroy the Messiah, not believe in him. Um, and the giving of the vineyard to others, that I think would also offend these tenants here. You're going to give the vineyard, the kingdom, to those dirty Gentiles? These people who work clearly better than these that They're going to get the vineyard? I mean, this is... First, they're going to be destroyed. Second, it's going to be given to Gentiles, the, the people, the, the unclean Gentiles. Um, and the reason here is because, you know, they didn't, they rejected their Messiah. Um, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that is a quote from Psalm 118, 22. If you want to turn to that, you can. I think you have time. Starting 19, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. So this Jesus is a stone, and he, in the psalm there, is associated with salvation for Israel, for true Israel. Um, now, this eight, verse 18, it's an interesting verse. I was trying to figure out who the two groups are here. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I tried to find a reference to sort of a commentary, but I found one commentary said that the way somebody was stoned is they would be thrown down into a stone pit so that they would be wounded. Now, if they weren't killed, then they would take a big stone, which would take two people to carry, and then the two people would throw that person, that stone down on that person, that would kill them. I don't know if that's possible. I mean, possibly. Clearly, I think the second group in mind is that when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That is someone who does not believe in the Messiah. Uh, the first group, I'm not I'm not 100% sure, even from that analogy. I don't know if anybody has any comments on that. I'm, not, I'm willing to claim ignorance here. I don't know. Um, could it be believers who fall on Jesus and are broken of themselves? You know, I don't know. Or could they both, could they both be unbelievers? I don't know. Either way, the, you know, I mean, it doesn't change the way we're saved or anything like that. It's just that particular verse. I don't know if you think so. Um, so, something to think about there. Um, so now, we have try number one. By whose authority? Jesus tells a parable about them, and it's not, it's not a good parable. It's not something that puts them in a good light. So they're going to try again. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on them at that very hour. So they want him gone. They want to deal with him now. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, but so they might catch him in something he said, um, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the government. 
So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription doesn't have. They said Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And we are not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So this is their second try to try to catch him. So they're like, we can't do it ourselves. Let's see if we can get Rome. We'll get him to say something against Rome. Maybe we can Rome get him arrested and killed or something like that, or for sedition, or you know, speaking against the king. Um, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? So I think behind this is the idea that the Caesar was seen as a god, uh, one of many gods in, the, in Rome. So it's kind of a, it's not just do you pay taxes to the government. It is that, but there's more than, we don't pay taxes, no one in the United States, we don't view our, our leaders as gods. Um, there's no pensioning on these, so there's a little a pinch of incense or something to, to the Caesar. Um, which and later on after Christians would not do and would be killed for it. Um, so kind of trying to catch Jesus on like, you know, should we pay t- taxes to this guy since he's a god? Well, you know, so and there's a lot of false flattery here. Um, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show not partiality but tr- truly teach the way of God. So it's like this, let's, let's butter him up and ask him a question. Maybe a little similar, although probably a little thicker than the rich young ruler, or a good teacher. It's probably not. It's probably even more. Um, so, do we pay? Tri- do we pay tribute to Caesar? Just shows him a coin. Denarius was just a simple coin. And so Caesar's picture is on the coin. So, okay, pay your taxes to Caesar, and pay your gift to God with God. So, Caesar gets some of your money. And God gets, gets your worship. And they couldn't catch him there. So they didn't know what to do. I don't think, I think they may have thought they were going to get him. Probably. Like, oh, we'll get him on this one. Um, I'm mean, possibly thinking of, I don't want to close on time. Like, like something to keep in mind, though, is I think they knew he's right all this time on many of these occasions. When I mean, you look at Nicodemus when he comes before him, he goes, we know that. You only someone can die has to be able to that's just the deceitfulness in their heart. I think they know this guy's right. And they're I mean everything they do, he's just he's answering them to the T. Right, so he's always at least one step at least yeah. one step ahead. I mean, Probably but, five. Right? But but their heart is so bitter. Even even though there's nothing they have against them, they they're, they want to put themselves before God, ultimately. And right. Uh, and he, he is a threat to their power. He is a threat. Just like Herod was a threat when he was born. You know, he says to the, the Magi, where is he born? I want to go worship him too. I kill him because he's a king. You're a king. You, want, you, don't, want, you don't want to be replaced. So it's just, it's, he, Jesus is a threat to their uh, earthly power. Um, so now, 
we send another group, the Sadducees. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there are seven brothers. The first took a wife and died with no children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children. Left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. But Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy attain that to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angel, and they are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. They are no longer dead to ask him a question. So now you have a group, a group I'll call the Protestant liberals, come on the scene and they deny the resurrection. But I have a question about the resurrection. It's like, why are you even asking? I mean, okay. Your group is known for being the naturalists of your day, denying supernatural things. But I'm going to ask you a supernatural question. I mean, almost even if you're just watching this as a spectator. What's with you guys? Like, you don't even believe this. Um, uh, you know, wives, no kids, whose wife is Why they do seven, I'm just curious. I don't know why they picked seven. The point would have been made with two. It's like one brother. Why do you need seven? It's, it's, you got the point after two. Maybe it's just thinking they'll trip them up. I don't know. Um, my sense is that they're probably desperate at this point. Um, but their question, even though it's asked from a, you know, ill motives, and they don't even believe in a resurrection, it's a legitimate, there is a possible sort of question, marriage, you know, um, whose wife will she be after the seven? So Jesus, Jesus answers the question and says that none of them will be married, that in the resurrection, um, neither marry or given in marriage. Um, I take this, and I think probably the majority report, although I did hear one group say that there might be marriage in heaven, in the eternal state. I'm highly skeptical of that, but I take this to mean that in the eternal state, people are not, there's no marriage. Obviously, no offspring, there's no children. So, whatever the relationship is between a husband and wife on earth, it's completely different in the eternal state if they're both born. So, if anybody ever had that question, you know, if you're married, should be my wife. You know, no, she won't. But it's like you know, it's, but um, so um, Jesus used an interesting passage in the book, the passage of the burning bush. He calls him the God of the living. I think there is speaking of. Uh, the spiritually living, not the God of the dead, but the living. I think he's kind of taking a shot at the Sadducees because he knows who they are. He knows that this is a group that's um, that's kind of the passage of um, Jesus has someone to follow him. I have to go bury 
my relative or something, I forgot what it was. And he's like, well, let the dead bury their own dead. He's using dead in two senses there. Let the dead, let the spiritually dead bury their own physically dead. And I think here that's what it is. Um, so, so he, asks, he answers the question and you know, it says some of the scribes answered. I don't know if those were the Sadducees who answered that. But they basically said, okay, we, we, we tried, at least in Luke here, we tried three times. We got nothing. Um, we're not going to ask any more questions. So Jesus decides to ask them a question in 41. But he, says, but he said this to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David says in the book of Psalms, um, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? That's a good question, actually. Gets to, I mean, he, you know, just in general, it gets to the nature of Christ. Who is he? Um, he's quoting from Psalm 110. Jesus is used, I believe that in the New Testament, a lot of times when they quote from the Old Testament, they're using the Septuagint. Uh, I think even Paul does that too. Um, Psalm 110, verse 1. Go back. Psalm 110, verse 1. Um, Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the difference in at least the old day, I'm reading the ESV here, but in the Psalms, the first Lord is capital L-O-R-D, which would be Yahweh, divine name. And the second Lord is capital L and lowercase. So it's not. So there's a distinction here between the members of the Trinity. But, um, but it's a question that He's asking these people don't believe in him. Okay, how am I, how am I David's son? Yet David called me Lord. And it is an interesting question. So, I mean, the incarnation answers this. I think if we were asked this today, we'll do question. I mean, the incarnation answers this. How is David, how is Jesus David's son? Yet David can call him Lord. In his human nature, he is David's son. It's from that Okay. But in his divine nature, he's the second person of eternity. He's the son, so he is David's glory. Um, and that's the, that's the question. It doesn't say how they answered. I doubt they would have even answered At this point, they really don't care to believe in him. So, at this, I almost wonder if he's just not trying to trick Maybe not try to trick them, but just confuse them. Show them that, like, I can... I can play at this game too if you want to ask questions. I, and it's a legit, it is a legitimate question, but like I can do this if you want. And if you want to play stump the dummy with me, okay, we'll play. We'll play and you can't answer this question. Um, so moving on, finally, and this is where, after all this, after this chapter, they try to catch him. Uh, he says, in the hearing of all the people. He said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around on long roads and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and feasts, who devour widows' houses for, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So this is like the culmination. It's like, okay, 
All these guys that have been asking me questions, beware of them. They're hypocrites. Right? What do they say? They like to walk around in long robes. They love to have people greet them. Um, they want to be wherever the best seat in the synagogue is. I'm assuming that's at the front. Yes. So they can be seen as being in the synagogue. Um, and a place of honor at feast. You have the parable about the place of honor where you go, you know, you just go to sit at the closest. I think Jacob did that, right? Did you do that? The feast? Rick did that one. Oh, is that you? Yeah? Okay, sorry. Somebody did. Or it's like the circle and it's one, two, three. So they're looking, they're, they want to be like number one or two. They don't want to be like, you know, that guy on the sides here. And so they want to puff themselves up. They want to glorify themselves. Um, who devour widows' houses, so basically stealing from the poor, is what you're saying here, and make pretense of long prayers. There's a parable about praying in, in, in secret, so the Father knows in secret, sees, right? That was told against them. But, so they're doing it to be seen, like, wow, these guys make long prayers, and their wording is really good, and wow, it sounds orthodox, this is amazing. But they're doing it to be seen and be praised by men. And what does it say about them? They will receive the greater condemnation. He basically just told them, your condemnation, as opposed to the condemnation of the average unbeliever, is greater. Because you have all this knowledge from the, what would back then have been the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible. You know this stuff. You know the Psalms he's referring. He knows all the, they know all the prophecies. And their condemnation is greater. And I think the application of that today is, if you take, you know, we have the kind of typical guy in an island, never heard of Jesus type thing, who doesn't believe, and someone who spent their whole life in church hearing the gospel. The condemnation is for that person who hears the gospel their whole life and doesn't believe, not the person who never heard it. Now there is condemnation. Creation is enough for condemnation. But the greater condemnation is those that be given more life. So in a sense, I say obviously this is spoken right to the Pharisees, but if we want to kind of draw an application, is beware of just being sitting in church, just being a churchgoer. Do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe it? Make up your mind. Decide if you do or you don't. Because sitting there and not believing it for another 30 years is only worse for you. And you know, obviously these guys is even worse because they're trying to trick the Messiah, they're trying to and eventually they're trying to kill the Messiah. I mean, Messiah, their condemnation is far greater because the one who was supposed to be their savior, they tried to kill and then eventually end up getting killed. So, um, so their, yes, their condemnation is greater. I, I think they made it to 10.30. Does anybody have any comments or questions? If not, Rick, you want to close? Sure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, raising up men like Greg in the church to, to teach and instruct us. And God, I pray that as we uh, consider these things that we have read this morning and studied, uh, Lord, that you would plant your word deep in our hearts, that we would know you, uh, Lord, that your word would uh, have its place and uh, its work in our lives uh, to bring us ever closer to you, Lord, to repent of our sins and, and to trust you uh, more fully. We thank you, Lord, uh, for these things and, and just your great blessings that you give to us. In your name, amen.